0: This is Wayne Jernell, Editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy.
1: You're listening to Visions of Education,
2: a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan
1: Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between
2: educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I really enjoyed teaching government to high school students. Yeah. Um, it was fun. It was fun. You know, I think that they were curious about how politics worked. They didn't necessarily connect with it mm-hmm. the way you would want, right? Like I think, I think our government curricula is probably too focused on federal. Right. Rather than state legislation. or local. Yeah, yeah. And just their communities. Cause kids want to make a difference, I think, but they don't always like want to get involved in like calling a Senator and being like, don't vote on this specific bill. Oh, you're going <laughs> to vote on it no matter what I say. Right. So I don't think they connected a lot with that. Although, we would do a uh, call-in class to a senator, yeah. and I would do it on speakerphone to give them an example, and then I'd ask them to do it because I just feel like they should have experience in that. They picked a real issue that they were passionate about and did a little research and would call a senator and ask some questions about it. And you know, I've done this numerous times, and sometimes they're really nice. And one time Harry Reid's office was really mean to me. They thought I was calling with some big agenda and they were just totally rude to me in front of my entire class. Oh, no. You're
1: trying to show like good government and how to like advocate for yourself in government and then you got shot down.
2: Well, and that's the partisanship, right? They probably comes from that. They get calls all day that are very partisan and and come from, you know, political action groups that have agendas and things like that. That's part of politics. Were you cheesing it up like you're reading off a script in front of students? I tried to just like talk naturally, but maybe, you know, it's weird to talk in front of people on a phone call, but you know, that's part of an important part of government classes, talking about political parties and partisanship and how it affects the way, you know, you think about politics and how being, you know, identifying with a party then influences the way you think. And I used to always show the John Stewart clip. It's kind of a classic where he was on Cro- the show Crossfire. Do you remember that show? Oh, with Tucker Carlson, right? Yeah, T- Tucker Carlson was the Republican, and Paul Begala was the Democrat. I always and forget Paul the, Begala; he's easy to forget. And the <laughs> <laughs> and it's something John Stewart probably would have said at the time. And the whole show—the premise of the show—is they basically sit there and argue from their political, you know, sides. But John Stewart's big point was like, you have this show where you get to talk about issues, but all you do is try to make arguments for your party. Right. That's like your whole point. Like you're not making honest arguments or having honest discussions about the issues that you're really waiting through. You're just thinking, how do I win this argument for my party? And that was his big problem.
1: It's like whatever your argument is, mine is the exact opposite. I like this. Therefore, no, you like this. Therefore, I hate it. This is Republicans are good for America. Democrats are evil for America or not real people or something.
2: Yeah, and that's that's where you can see like the parties even flip on issues from one like president, president to for another example, <laughs> to the next. Yeah, because they're just trying to win. And so John Stewart called it he just said it was political theater. Yeah. And was very critical of it. And so I'd show that to my students and he cussed in it, which mm-hmm. I, I think it's that's... every once in a while I think kids should hear a cuss word at school. Yeah, every so often. Real...
1: When I was when I took <laughs> my AP government class with Dr. Leo McHugh. We have to watch the McLaughlin group every week, and it's just – they're sitting around a table, and McLaughlin just goes, wrong, wrong. It was very fun, and I just remember I was, like, watching it over – oh, oh, the girl I was dating. I had to – because, you know, it was like a Sunday after – I don't know. I had to watch it over her house all the time, uh, and that was really strange. Her Her parents probably thought I was very weird, which I get.
2: I'm hoping you didn't start using that wrong line to her, because I bet that relationship ended quickly after. (laughs) Well, so I think thinking about the ways that students understand civics and partisanship is such an important issue today. We all recognize it. And it's something we talk about a lot, but maybe we don't have the expertise our guest does today. And so we're going to welcome into the podcast,
0: Chris Clark. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Chris Clark, it's great to have you here.
0: Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: who who is this Chris Clark? Not Topher Clark, uh, like I had right, originally yes. had, had, had tried to push upon you.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it is Chris Clark. I was a high school teacher for about six years, and then um, now what I do is I research students' political identities and how they talk about issues that people disagree on, and particularly right now I'm focusing on how their partisan identity influences the way that they engage in discussions of issues of controversy, how they feel about their fellow classmates, their teachers, and all of those other things.
2: Before we jump into all of that, tell us what what was your teaching experience
0: like? Sure. I taught um, high school for six years, two of which I spent teaching abroad uh, in uh, Paraguay at an American school down there. And the first four years of my career, I spent teaching high school uh, at Minnehaha Academy in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So shout out to them. Um, and I've taught U.S. history. I've taught psychology. I've taught current events. I've taught philosophy. So I kind of have a very That's broad awesome. social studies teaching portfolio. And it's What's actually true? kind of through those teaching experiences that I got turned on to my approach to the way students talk about it, where it very much melds political science with psychology. I'm really interested in not just, you know, the ideals of how we should talk about things, you know, you go back to Thomas Jefferson and we should all put on our knee-high breeches, go to the public square and talk about things rationally. I'm really interested in the way people actually talk about politics and, you know, the way that in some ways our brains wire us to talk about politics.
1: Don't they just shell things on their Facebook wall? Isn't that the uh, the way most people do it nowadays? Pretty
0: much, yeah. You know, we say that that's unusual or this is a new thing, but it's actually not not terribly surprising if you look at the way people are sort of biased towards their own group and their own ideas and why they tend to do that is so that they they're not so much hoping to convince you. They're hoping to reinforce their own identities or kind of send up flags to people who agree with them to kind of tout their group membership.
1: It makes me feel good when other people, you know, agree with me and like my status.
0: Yeah, you have like this very witty joke on Facebook about politics and, you know, you can kind of see which crazy aunts and uncles disagree with you and which ones agree with you and, you know, which which of your friends are on your team based on who likes your status or who argues with you.
1: I wonder if I'm the crazy uncle sometimes. Like, (laughs) you know, I got to be someone's crazy uncle, although... my right, pieces yeah. are very small.
0: Yeah, it's probably fair to assume that you're the crazy person, not just you individually, but probably, you know, everyone who posts political stuff on Facebook. You're someone's crazy something, I would imagine.
1: <laughs> that should be Michael, a t-shirt. You're someone's crazy i so- You're I'm <laughs> someone's crazy uncle.
2: <laughs> you're, you're the crazy uncle of our Visions of Education podcast community. <laughs> <laughs> oh it maybe would be a little simpler if we just went ahead and started raising flags Around our mm-hmm. political beliefs, like literal flags, like we put them up. So, I like, guess this is what I agree with. Uh, maybe then we wouldn't have, we could just, you know, uh, skip past all the. I guess that's what we do on Facebook, though, really, anyways, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And it certainly would be easier when you talk to people that at least you have like a starting point where, you know, you don't have to necessarily do all those, that dance around where you're like, oh, well, how do you feel about this? Or, you know, you don't have to ask these like subtle questions. Uh, that uh, kind of gets you a clue into what they think. So,
2: Chris, you recently published an article on Theory and Research in Social Education. Congratulations mm-hmm. on your publication. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yay! Uh, your, article is titled, <laughs> your article is titled Examining the Relationship Between Civic Education and Partisan Alignment in Young Voters. So what mm-hmm. did you find out? Well, Tell us a little about your study.
0: Well, one of the things I was looking for is, you know, perhaps the simpler way to say it is I was looking for a way to see whether young voters are polarized and what influences them to be politically polarized or not. The problem with that is that there's no actual direct data on, well, are these young people polarized? Because very few people study young people in politics. And so kind of what I did was just tried to see if the way that people vote was either aligned with their ideology and their partisan beliefs and their self-identification. Like, are you a strong Republican or are you just kind of a Republican and looking for the alignment to whether they're all on one side or if they mix it up a little bit. Cause ideally, you know, you should be able to say, you know, I agree with the Republicans here, here and here, but I don't agree with them here, here and here, but I still think of myself as a Republican. Well, Increasingly, that's not happening. Increasingly, people are sorting themselves into saying I'm kind of all with the Republicans, or I'm all with the Democrats. And if I'm not, I'm probably going to change my opinion to be with them because I, I trust that they're always right, because they're the good guys, the other people are the bad guys. So the point of the study really is just to sort of figure out, well, How does civic education influence that? Are the people who get what we would consider good civic education, are they less likely to have that extreme alignment where everything, their ideology, their voting, their issue beliefs, their partisan identification is all on one side of the spectrum? And how likely is it that they might not be that completely aligned? And so it's a statistical analysis, so please let me know if I'm boring you with too many technical terms. But really, all I did was a quick crunch the numbers, and I found that in some circumstances, if you have good civic education, but the classroom climate is not very open, and uh, I don't know, have we talked about open classroom climate on this podcast before? You can you can give us a summary. Okay. We'd like a review. Yeah. OK, yeah, that's fair enough. So um, in terms of uh, open classroom climate, that's basically how comfortable are you expressing your opinions and how much do you feel that you can express your opinions without fear of repercussion or judgment from your peers? So there's in general, if you have good education practices like you do discussions, simulations and you do community service projects, but you have very low classroom climate or that your classroom climate isn't very open you tend to have a higher likelihood of being one of those extreme partisans and then the same thing on the reverse end where if you have a very open classroom climate but you don't use a whole lot of good pedagogy then you're also more likely to be extreme but when you have both you actually end up with a lower likelihood of being an extremist so to speak where you are less likely to have all your beliefs and your identifications and your voting patterns all on one side of the aisle. You tend to be more likely to be mixed.
1: What we want to aim for is the baby bear approach. Not too much, mm -hmm. not too little, just right.
0: Yeah, in some ways, yeah. You want to try and find the balance between making sure that people can express themselves, but you also want to make sure that your discussions are rigorous enough. Because if you look at the first situation that I encompassed, you know, imagine you're having a classroom discussion where everyone just goes around the circle and they say, this is my opinion. And everyone goes, oh, that's very nice that that's your opinion. Here's my opinion. But they're not really diving into or questioning each other. No one has to defend their opinion. So that's a very open climate. But the discussion isn't very rigorous. Whereas on the other end, everyone's having to defend their opinion. But when they do, they feel like they're going to be attacked for it. The classroom climate isn't very open, but the pedagogy is pretty good. Well, then they're going to just entrench themselves in their beliefs. So in one situation, you've got them feeling very reinforced because everyone was listening to my opinion. And, you know, they all nodded their head when I shared my opinion. In the other situation, you've got people feeling very defensive. And in both cases, you're going to get the student doubling down on their opinion that they're going to become more extreme in their opinion because it's either they are defensive about it or they're getting it reinforced. But when you have kind of both, you know, you can break down those barriers that they feel like they can share, but it's also a climate that is able to create enough comfort that they're willing to step outside of their comfort zone and not be as defensive. And it's a fine line to walk because then the question becomes, well, how do you create that classroom climate? And that's one of the areas where the literature has been a little fuzzy. You know, that uh, some people say you should do some community building. Other people say, well, you just kind of do enough discussions and it sort of
2: comes out of it. Out. Mm-hmm. My social studies mentor and professor at the University of Oklahoma, Neil Hauser, he was really good at this. And mm-hmm. what he did is he, he did build a strong community. It was really based in finding common ideas that we could yeah. all kind of, um, come to recognize. And uh, like, for example, we used to use a book called Seven Blind Mice in the beginning of some of his Mm -hmm. courses. It's a little book by Ed Young. It's fantastic. You can use it Mm -hmm. to set up any courses and he would use it like on the first day. And basically the book goes through all these mice that see different things. In the end, they realize they're all looking at different parts of an elephant and Mm -hmm. they saw a different thing. And so the point is that we have different perspectives and that's a given that Mm -hmm. we accept that we understand other people have different perspectives. And so he really talked about the importance of that. Then he said part of the challenge, and this was part of it, really his participation grade and thing he expected in the class, is that you are willing to have your beliefs challenged. And mm-hmm. no one really disagrees with those ideas, but he like laid the foundation and spent enough time that we all kind of agreed. So it's almost like you had like a common agreement that we were going to do mm-hmm. this work, and it's never perfect or easy to, right. to have difficult discussions. But people were committed to it by the end of, I think, that first class Mm -hmm. with them, because that was going to be part of what a college class on difficult issues is about, is Mm -hmm. questioning your own beliefs and listening to others. And as long as you're willing to do that, we could have it. And so it was really cool to see him do that. And I'm sure he developed that over years. And he was really Mm -hmm. good at it, I'm sure. Because if you don't take it really seriously and the students don't take it seriously, it may not work. Mm -hmm. Have you seen? I mean, just is having a lot of discussions had success also?
0: Well, and again, that does depend on the type of discussions, because if you're looking at an area where a lot of people, you know, they hold strong beliefs to begin with, those are the people that are more likely going to really dig into you. And depending on the person, not everyone responds well to that. And I'm actually a big believer in community building, because a lot of the social psychological research shows that, you know, before you talk about things controversially, you really ought to just focus on some of the things that are pretty common between people. You know, oh, well, tell me about your family. What sports teams do you like? Things like that, where it's not as high stakes. There's not as many. Well, and depending on who you are, sports teams might be a bad example. Some people get really into, you know, sports teams. But the idea is that you bond over things that are not controversial so that you bring that person who may or may not agree with you into your community or your idea of classroom community. And I think that's one of the key elements is that, do you perceive the person you're talking with as an outsider or an insider? Because, you know, if an outsider criticizes me, I become defensive If an insider criticizes me, I'm more receptive to that. And so I think a lot of the community building is just redefining it away from this is a space where Republicans and Democrats are talking to each other versus is this a space where classmates are talking to each other? And that's, I think, the real trick. And, you know, you can do that through repeated discussions, but I think you need a lot of teacher reinforcement of the rules and a very clear set of expectations for the way that discussion proceeds because it's going to take some practice. The natural instinct is when you say something I disagree with, my brain immediately wants to protect me from that information. And so I need to either develop a counter argument, or I need to justify you being an awful person. And then that's going to help protect me from your information, because then that means I don't have to listen to it.
2: Why is it that most people that disagree with me are awful people? Uh,
0: <laughs> well because you know they, they they're they they're just not as smart as you dan that's just how it is that uh they just don't know any better that that in group
2: <laughs> that in group out group kind of idea i think really that's a really great way to put it and how can the class come together around ideas i did always like the when thinking of like a, a sports as something people may come around with or identify mm-hmm. with I always loved the uh, onion. I had the onion shirt that said the sports team mm-hmm. from my area is superior to the sports team from your area. And, yes. uh, you know, just kind of playing on the, the different ways we identify, though, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that obviously happens in politics and culture and other things that can mm-hmm. bring us together and also kind of push people apart if we don't work
0: towards those. So. Mm-hmm. And different identities come out in different situations, you know. And I'll use this because I'm Minnesotan. I don't walk around considering myself a Vikings fan, but you put me next to someone in Packers regalia, and I'm going to be like, "Well, you know, that jerk." I, I don't. Yeah, you, you, you kind of get a little uh, judgmental of people when they're visibly a member or they're visibly making that identity salient towards you. You know, um, that's funny. And so, yeah, you know, and that so there's a element of well, we have to see well, what is the discussion going to stimulate? So, you know, is this discussion a partisan discussion? Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's race, class, gender, any number of other factors are going to be more salient than partisanship, given the discussion we're having. Or maybe it's something that's going to activate multiple identities, and it's going to be pretty unpredictable as to what's going to come to the forefront for any given student. And so that's where it gets really complicated. And that's why you see a whole lot of literature saying if you've got an open classroom climate, that's great. But when you break it down to what is the step-by-step, how to get an open classroom climate, a lot of people are just like, yeah, it just kind of happens. You know, it's it's very hard to come up with a step-by-step of how to get it. What about t-shirts?
1: Like if I have a t-shirt with all my identities and this way I can see mm-hmm. what other people have in this way, I'd wear it all the time. I'd probably need a few of them because you don't want to wear mm-hmm. the t-shirt.
2: Ooh, positionality t-shirts?
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, and and actually, that's one of the things that I think would be a really promising start, not so much because of just declaring your positionality, but really getting into people's life experience and really saying, you know, this is where I'm coming from. It says Democrat, not, yeah, I mean, T-shirts obviously being somewhat facetious, but this is why it says Democrat in my T-shirt. This is what my parents did. These are my experiences. This is where I'm coming from. Or, you know, you put your racial identification on there. You say, this has been my experience with race. This is why I have a strong identification around my racial identity. Gender, class identity, whatever identity is salient for you, Even might even be a sports team.
1: Right. You might even be a cheesehead.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or you might
1: just be a huge fan of our podcast, and so you want to put that as part of your identity.
0: Yeah, I'll put that on a t-shirt note regardless. doesn't matter who's <laughs> watching. <laughs> but, it, you know, the idea, though, is that if you – give people a chance to declare that positionality and really talk about what's behind it. I think that could go a long way towards building the community and really giving people some empathy and by allowing others to tell their story and, you know, letting people find that common ground where it's not so much about, oh, this person's a Democrat, but that's why this person is a Democrat. And even though I might not have ended up in the same place, I might have some common experience with that person or common ground that we can build on. And so, I, I mean, it's probably not perfect, but I think that's a better foundation than just simply, this is my opinion. These are my rational defenses of it. Let's go from there.
1: I recently went to a workshop about diversity and, and empathy. And mm-hmm. one of the activities they had, we like looked at our identity on this piece of paper I think it was a folder or something we cut out parts of our identity and we put it in there and then they matched mm-hmm. us into a group and I was in a group and we're trying to figure out what the identity that they matched us with so we spent like 20 minutes trying to figure it out it turned out because we all happen to be Italian but none of us identify ourselves as Italian mm-hmm. ethnically I am half Sicilian but my mm-hmm. sicilianness is not except for the fact i'm talking with my hands right now which i think i get from my mother but that's not such a part of me there are other parts that are more valuable than that part it was just a very interesting it was interesting
2: so mm-hmm. you're part sicilian part silly
1: no i'm all silly <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: sorry that was that was
1: a bad
0: play on words <laughs>
1: that's okay i don't know we can just i forgot now no. i'm
0: just thinking about pizza so you know it's, yeah, i don't even need
1: <laughs> i don't even need pizza i don't eat tomatoes i make my own pizza with like really great sauces but pizza doesn't have to have tomatoes where does it say the pizza has to have tomatoes i don't think it does there's pizza tomatoes. Exactly. exactly there's amazing pizza i make a great gorgonzola cream sauce you put that with some apples like roasted apples it's a it's beautiful some arugula I'm-
2: You're in my out group right now, Michael.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm in a lot of people's out group of the pizza thing.
2: Why do people tend to be so much more divided on politics and pizza? Really? I think probably most people just forgive you for that one. These are the real
0: questions we brought you on to answer, Chris. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and that's the thing where there are some things that are preferences that don't really have consequences, you know, where the fact that you like, You know, tomatoes on your pizza doesn't necessarily.
1: Oh, sorry. Or don't
0: like tomatoes. (laughs) You know, that you prefer the ricotta cheese sauce down there or something like that, where that doesn't necessarily affect my life to the degree where it might be a minor inconvenience if we have to split a pizza. But partisanship, on the other hand, you know, the consequences of it are pretty heavy. And that by you getting your pizza choice and me not getting mine, I lose a little bit, but I think that people view the stakes of politics as higher. And also, I think there's a tendency to just sort of people's politics are also very closely tied to their values, where maybe tomato sauce doesn't taste as good to you. But I don't know if if I were to say, what are your moral values? I don't think you say like, well, my parents instilled in me a hatred of tomato sauce (laughs) that I have carried down through the generations. The, The consequences are probably lower. I would say that mistakes because of that perception that someone's gain is my loss in a very real sense is probably a little bit more heightened with politics than it would be on just a simple preference
2: sorry for taking you so far down pizza road there chris that was not planned All right, i'm hungry so uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll go order something
0: after I've it is around
2: it. dinner time as we're recording this But for teachers who are trying to bridge these partisan divides and have important discussions where we learn and can kind of grow from discussions and and have discussions that are going to be helpful for civic citizens and a democracy, what advice do you have for them being able to do that successfully?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would say the first thing I would circle back to is really do build your classroom community and do everything in your power to emphasize that. Your classroom is going to be a safe space, but it's also going to be a rigorous space that, you know, maybe you understand the difference between an opinion versus just a belief. You know, I can say the sky is purple, but I have no evidence to support that. Um, He's on the Vikings. That, That's yeah, exactly. Why not? You know, <laughs> But you you have to make sure that the students understand that, you know, they're entitled to their beliefs, but their opinions are going to be, they're going to be asked for justification for those. And so establishing that norm, I think is a good start. And then but also establishing that you have come to the classroom with a common purpose. And I think to go back to what I said earlier about redefining who the social group is, who the in group is, who the out group is, and giving people a chance to bond over non-political things before you hit them with an issue that is really political If I know that you're a good person, that you're nice and that you share a lot of commonalities with me, but you happen to disagree with me about politics, that's easier than just like, oh, these evil Republicans or bleeding heart liberals or something. That's an easier than an abstract stereotype. And so I would say do what you can to dispel those stereotypes very quickly by allowing students to get to know each other and almost going back to the T-shirt thing where you say, like, what's important to me? What identities do I hold and why do I hold them? That, I think, is a very important part before you even try these heavy political discussions, really just try and build some common community. But then you also have to recognize that people are a little bit unpredictable, that you're not always going to have that perfect discussion and that emotions are going to flare. And that's good. And that's okay, as long as it doesn't become dominantly an exchange of rage between two sides. So I I think allowing space for people to be human and making that part of your expectation, I think one of the mistakes we make as social studies teachers is we figure everyone's going to conform to this very ideal deliberative model where everyone just sort of exists in this cerebral space that is completely rational. Well, we're not robots. We have emotions and those get triggered sometimes in ways that are going to impact the flow of discussion and creating a space for those I think is also important.
1: I did some work with the Edward M. Kennedy Institute a couple of years back, and one of the things that they do, it's the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate, and you can do like simulations for, for historical or current topics, which can be kind of heated sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, but one of the things they do on the outside of their gallery, they have this one part where you, with people near you in your little tablet devices, you figure out what toppings are going to be on the national ice cream treat and it's interesting because it's such a low stakes argument. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of teaching you the deliberation on how to do it with that. So this way, mm-hmm. when you go into the body, you can actually engage in more high intense conversations because they've kind of laid the groundwork. It's interesting because it's such, again, such a low stakes thing. Who the hell cares mm-hmm. about ice cream?
0: Well, and I like the idea of that task because it's a cooperative task. Some of the old psychological studies, they talk about, you know, how do you make Extremely divided groups work together while you give them something they have to cooperate on to succeed. So that if you find that Republicans and Democrats can agree on that, you know sprinkles are good. You know that that's a common ground that may not have existed before. And as simple as it seems, by giving them that problem to solve together, I think that that actually is really well designed. It's like this. It's a trick of teaching.
2: I don't want to say it's manipulative because it really is mm-hmm. meaningful. And purposeful, but just getting them to agree on those common purposes that we do want mm-hmm. to listen to people with different views than us. Cause most people agree with that. And if you can build that in early where they agree, like mm-hmm. in my government class, I used to, we used to have a class constitution and we would go through everything and agree mm-hmm. on it and eventually sign it. And I would like, we'd went through rounds and, and that really helped because there was not, none of the big issues were left. We agreed we would challenge each other. We agreed we would listen to others. And So then I could always refer back to that agreement because we did feel a sense of solidarity around those purposes, Mm -hmm. which is also what I tried to do. And my mentor did with the seven blind mice book. Oh, yeah, we should we do see things differently. And so once we recognize that, that became part of kind of our of our ethic in the class, you know, and referencing back to that was really helpful. Yeah. And and I think,
0: again, that's a great example of just trying to establish sort of who's in the in group. And that, you know, when you redefine the in-group as just this is the class, we wrote a constitution together. That's really, I think, something that's a very valuable exercise to kind of build that foundation for open classroom discussion climates.
2: And one last thing I'll say was really important when I talk government was talking about how much time we spend talking in the Mm -hmm. class. Right. That everyone gets an opportunity to talk because. That was the thing I had to make sure is that if we did have some more partisan students, that I did ask them to listen more because they mm-hmm. actually knew their beliefs more, and so they needed to give more space for other people to contribute to the conversation to oh, discuss. That's a good idea. Uh, because mm-hmm. that, and so I was really big on on, and I would just ask those students. I would say, I, it's not that I want to hear l- less of you; it's that I want to hear more of your classmates. So I need you to pick mm-hmm. your spots in the class, um, and make sure we have kind of, uh, an opportunity for everyone to join in the conversation. And I tried to monitor that constantly. Cause if you don't monitor mm-hmm. it, it comes back to those seven
0: students who like to talk out of a class of 25. Right. Yeah. And I would agree definitely that, you know, creating space for not just other students to participate, but also different kinds of participation. One of the things that we so often fall into is that, Only arguments supported by data should be allowed. And that's true in some cases because you don't want them to descend into just sort of exchanging talking points. At the same time, I think that there's room for personal experience or that there's room for anecdotes in such a way as, again, you can allow people to build empathy for the lived experience of the other people in the group. And so maybe expanding a little bit beyond the purely rational argumentation and allowing other people to contribute what they can. You know, there's going to be different ability levels in classes and there's going to be different lived experiences and not everyone is going to be able to offer a completely data supported 10 point rationale for their position but that belief is still real to them and they are going to act on it. They are going to respond as though that belief is just as important as the person who has that 10-point rationale. That's
1: a great point. Well, Chris Clark, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: It's been a pleasure to be here.
1: Where can our listeners find you or your work online?
0: You can find my article on the TRSC website. So if you go to the Theory and Research and Social Education website, you can find my articles there. And hopefully I'll get some more of a web presence soon, but uh, otherwise, you know, just check there for my work. For the
2: time being, our page for this podcast can serve as your place online and we'll get get all your stuff linked there.
0: Sounds great. I appreciate it.
2: So thank you so much for joining us today, Chris, and we hope to continue the discussion online, specifically on our page, and we're going to try to convince you to get on Twitter and we'll continue it in other spaces. All right. Well, thank you.
1: Now, at the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something creative, fun, or you just want to chat, hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're also on other places like Facebook and somewhere else. Pinterest, Pinterest yes. For some reason. And, of course, if you haven't already, subscribe. Have your friends subscribe. Tell your parents to subscribe to us on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you be, where, wherever you'll be.
2: If you write us a five star review, we will read it on the air, and it helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka,
1: and I'm at Forty Two Think Deep.
2: Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. We are all about sharing the learning. If you tweet us at visions of Ed, dang it, I just messed up that part. That part's worded weird, Michael. I'm just yeah, gonna that's say that. I always mm. change it.